Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very pleased today to have one of the two editors of a fascinating book titled Salt, Scotland's Newest Oldest Industry, published by Berlin in 2023, which pretty much does exactly what it says, talks about salt in Scotland, which... I suppose I had realized was important, kind of anecdotally, but I'd never really thought about properly. This book really does it properly, um, with a load of different contributors looking historically, looking currently. This book tells you, I mean, I think pretty much anything you would need to know about salt in Scotland. So I'm very pleased to have one of the two editors of the book. Uh, We're not able to have Dr. Joe Hambly with us, but we do have Dr. Christopher Watley with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Um, before we get into all things salt and Scotland, would you mind please introducing yourself a little bit, uh, maybe a few words about your co-editor, and explain why you decided to make this book, why do it together, what's the backstory of this volume? Okay, I'm I'm Chris Watley. I'm Christopher Watley. I'm a professor of Scottish history at the University of Dundee, although I'm now retired. But I have to say that while I no longer draw a salary, I still carry out research and publications. In fact, more I'm more active now than I probably was when I was in full-time work. Um, I'm a historian of, of 18th, 19th century Scotland, by and large, a whole host of topics. I won't go into them. My um, co-editor, Joe Hambly, is an archaeologist. She works at the University of St Andrews, and her role is really, uh, um, she's a coastal archaeologist, so she, she, she and her team go around, are going around currently parts of the coast of Scotland and recording um, sites that are that are at risk. And so that's why she got into the salt industry, because all of these salt works we, we, we'll be talking about are coastal locations. And why did we get into this book? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I um, I first got into salt way, way back when I was doing my PhD, which was on industrialization in, in southwest Scotland. And one minor chapter was about the salt industry. But I became interested in salt because, A, no one seemed to have been very interested in it hitherto. In other words, nothing had been published. Um, and also, it was a difficult subject to research because the source were very scarce or seemed to be scarce. Um, However, to cut a long story short, um, although after I finished my PhD, I left it lie for a few years, and in 1987, I produced a a book, a small book, on the Scottish salt industry, and that was it. Um, There was some interest in it at the time, um, but not a great deal of interest, Um, and maybe we could talk about aspects of that later on, because it's quite quite amusing in in many ways. Well, I'll tell you one of the stories right now is that um, I gave a talk shortly after the book was published in a place called Kincardine, which is on the River Forth. And in Kincardine was a was a major salt producing um, town, if you like. And my audience that evening was three. So there wasn't a great deal of interest in it. It was a very much a solo occupation. And as I say, I left it lie for, for, for 30 years or so. But then um, I was invited 
in the late uh, in 2018, I think it was, to talk at a conference that um, Joe Hambly, my co-editor, who I had never met, um, was organising. And the conference was uh, called um, the Scottish Salt Symposium. And it was the first time ever that had there had been such a thing. Um, and Jo had got into this through her work as a, as a coastal archaeologist, had become enthused and had was particularly involved with a local history group in near Brora, which is in northeast Scotland, the Klein Heritage Society. And um, she had been working with them on a lot of remains of the salt industry in that part of Scotland and had also through that got got to know other local mainly archaeologists who were working on on their localities and i was invited to give the keynote lecture and um and and i thought again that was that but there was a push at the end of the conference for these papers um to be published and so Joe and I took on the job of uh, finding a publisher, finding sponsors, uh, working with the various contributors to the conference on chapters to what would be what what has become this book. And um, there's a lot of extra work gone into it. They're not just this not a book of conference papers. These are um, these these are very thorough pieces of research, some of that research, including my own stuff, which has been done since the conference, really, um, because in my own case, my interest and enthusiasm for SALT was uh, reignited by working with this team of of hugely enthusiastic local historians, uh, traditional historians and archaeologists. That sounds like quite an entertaining conference, really. It was. Um, and go some way to answering the question of sort of with any edited volume, how did you decide on the contributors? But given, as you said, there was so much work done afterwards, is there anything further we should know about how this list of contributors was created? No, they're, 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 they were, well, most of them were uh, contributors at the conference. Um, and um, But most of them too, well, all of them actually, have since the conference worked up their papers um, uh, and turned them into, into uh, chapters that can be read rather than conference presentations and, and as you'll know there's a bit of a difference between these two these two media if you like mm, yes very much so um given that everyone came together at a conference but as you mentioned right local historians traditional historians archaeologists there's a few different sort of areas time periods types of methods going on here so can you briefly walk us through how the book is organized and how you decided on this yeah, the 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 book um, is well. The book takes us from the first written evidence we have of salt making in Scotland from the 11th century until really today, because that we bring the story right up to date by by having some chapters written by uh, modern day or current current um, producers of salt in Scotland. Um, the book is is organised in various uh, three sections. The, the, the first is, is is the overview sections, if you like. That that's the story of salt um, over time, um, and including the archaeology of salt over time. And then we um, we look at 
various regional um, aspects of the industry because salt, while most salt in Scotland, it's all it's always sea salt or, or salt manufactured from from basically evaporating or boiling seawater. Most of most of the 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 pans because it's I, I don't know if you want me at some stage to explain how this stuff is made, but anyway, most of the industry um, was 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 uh, based around. Are based around the fourth, the the first of fourth, but there's many other localities in Scotland where salt was made historically, um, and so we had a lot of local studies from down in the southwest of Scotland, down in Galloway, um, uh, up the Clyde coast. Although that we didn't have as much coverage as that as we'd have liked, we had a lot of coverage on the fourth or the fourth estuary, and particularly Fife. And then going up as far north as as Brora, um, we we don't have a chapter on Orkney, but there was salt made in Orkney. So it it it, it and so we have the, the 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 national and the long run. We have the regional um, aspects of it, and then we have some case studies um, from but of, of of aspects of the industry. So, for example, um, there's a a man from Cambridge, Professor John Blair. Who uh, is not a historian of Scotland? He's not a historian of uh, uh, certainly not an economic and social historian or an archaeologist. But it so happened that he um, was working um, on an ancestor of his who happened to have been a salt worker in the in the eighteenth uh, century, and so he he um, that that's up in Port Soy, which again is in north um, east of Scotland, and he um, he he wrote a, a, a wonderful piece, which is basically um, his his own enthusiasm for a family member or an ancestor, but turned into a, a serious study of how his ancestor ended up in Port Soy making salt. Uh, does that help? Is that uh... yeah? No, that gives us a great overview. Um, and I am, in fact, about to ask you how salt is made um, as a way of helping us sort of start at the beginning chronologically. So, mm-hmm. can you walk us through when and where did salt making start in Scotland? And as well, when we say salt making at this early period, what mm-hmm. do we mean? Well, what we, basically, basically salt. In Scotland, um, it's not made um, by using the sun to evaporate it, as it might be in the Mediterranean or uh, or Biscay, um, but it's made by boiling seawater or heating seawater, usually in or, or in, in earlier times in lead pans, um, relatively small um, things the size of say a bath, um, and later that and, and over time that that turns into um, iron pans which are larger, perhaps eighteen feet um, long by nine feet broad, by about eighteen inches deep. Um, so it's boil. It's, it's the salt water is is taken into these pans, whatever size they are, and it is heated by peat, wood, and latterly coal. So so in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, 14th centuries, um, a lot of wood was used, but there was a lot more wood in Scotland then. Um, peat has been used in some places, although salt making is such a an energy hungry process, really, that, um, that, that you need vast quantities of peat in order to keep a salt pan going. I should explain that um, while there are, there are variations over time and there are variations between region, um, for, for most of the 
period of the most of the 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 the, the best period or greatest period of Scottish salt production, which is really from the 16th century to through to the 19th century, most of the salt was 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 heated in the iron pans I've talked about, and these were these were um, what happens is salt is salt water is taken. Uh, is is preserved in reservoirs in coast in, in rock pools really um on the seashore it is then lead pumped um well lifted perhaps in buckets but but later pumped um high up into uh, into the salt houses if you like the salt pan houses which are always on the seashore or, or near to the seashore and then that water over a period of 24 hours because it takes a long time to make a pan of salt um it's then fed from these from the water which has been in the reservoir and then pumped into the pans it's then it then then flows into the salt pans that i've described themselves and it is slowly um boiled or evaporated over a over a period really 24 hours so salt product salt making is a long tedious um process you cannot boil well if you do boil seawater rapidly it simply uh, liquefies um, very soon thereafter and so you in order to make the sort of crystals you need the process has to be carried out slowly now there are other that that's how most Scottish salt was made, but but in earlier times, the, as I say, the pans were were smaller. There was um, there was a process called sleaching, whereby um, salt uh, salt water is 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 drawn up with sand um, in 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 some parts of the country, particularly in the southwest. And natural so there's a there's a natural process there whereby. Over a period of, of, of hours or days, um, salt is 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 salt salt is extracted from sandy seawater. It's it's a it's a it's not a clean process, but salt making, however it was made, uh, is not a clean process until modern times. But I'll talk about that later on. But but um, because the salt seawater obviously has impurities in it, seaweed, fish. Sand, um, other other things you don't want in your salt, and that um, has to be cleared out of the water as it is being evaporated very slowly, as I say, in these pan houses. And the process of evaporation, as I say, is slow. But in order to remove these these impurities, um, bull's blood, egg yolks, and other other other, if you like, other other um, products are are poured onto the top of the boiling water and that then and then these these impurities if you like congeal around about these uh, things like egg yolks if you say eggs if you like and then drawn off but there's still there's still impurities um in the salt that's produced so actually we'll get onto this later i'm sure actually most um uh, users of salt in scotland would have preferred to use bay salt that is the imported salt which is which is made by natural evaporation from 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 spain uh, france and so on but um for political reasons that didn't happen and so the salt that was used in scotland was 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 not the purest of salts although i have to Say say that modern day producers of salt in Scotland um, use a, a kind of similar method, but it's very very clean. Mm. Well, I don't think I th- that makes sense to you. It does, yeah. No, and I think as you said, we will get to the modern things um, yeah. 
eventually, just to make sure we're clear kind of when exactly are we sort of talking about these processes? Well, in the, in the let's say from the 11th, 12th, salt has probably been made in Scotland for, for longer than a thousand years, but it's just that we don't have, um, we don't have any written records until really the 11th, 12th centuries when, when you begin to see um, records, um, mainly royal records actually, because the salt industry was enormously, um, it was a high status occupation at the time, so you had the king's, the sick king's salt master, if you like, um, but I, I'm, I'm getting, I'm straying off the point, the the point is that salt was, uh, we have records of salt being made from about the 12th, 11th, 12th centuries, uh, and not about, we have them going back to the 11th and 12th centuries. And the uh, my colleague Richard Oram, who co-wrote one of the chapters with me, um, pointed out, or his, his, his argument um, is that most of this salt in those times was made by, made probably using the lead pans I've talked about, but using wood um, as the fuel. Um, and so um, salt, a salt maker would um, perhaps lease or have the right to woods in the vicinity of his, um, and it's mainly his salt pans. Um, so, so that goes on till probably the 15th century, 16th century, and then and then we're finding that iron is the is the principal uh, is the principal metal, if you like, used in 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 the salt. In, in the salt industry, and it's at this time that the the industry really begins to take off um, for a variety of reasons. Um, so that so it's the bigger pans, iron with iron plates bolted together um, or welded together, which um, which is 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 you know which is how the salt is made. Um, or it's, that's the location in which salt is made. That's the place in which salt is made, um, right through till really, really the 1950s. So it's 600 years, let's say, of iron pans, um, which are made um, of, of iron. Some of it's imported from from Sweden. It's very expensive, bolted together, um, and produces, I say, to, to form these 18-foot thereabouts um, long by 9-foot thereabouts wide, 18 inches thereabouts deep. And the, the reason I'm stressing thereabouts is there's variations according to local makers, according to the technical know-how, the technical knowledge of the salt master, or indeed the, the, the master of the pan so there's variation but but that's roughly the the ballpark figure and that's what we're r- roughly talking really talking about the pans are sit, are, are located in pan houses which are uh, roofed um stone built thatch or pan tiled roofs um very steep the working conditions inside them are pretty pretty primitive in the sense that there's uh, there's fire underneath the pans which has to be kept going continuously, and the pan houses themselves, or where the pan is is located, which is obviously above the fire. It's 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 dark, but it's very smoky. It's very steamy, um, and it's very hot and very unpleasant. Hmm. I don't well, know. Yeah, that's that- a very helpful. Yeah, no, that gives us a good sense of time and also kind of what it was like. I'd love to pick up on um, something you briefly mentioned, the the status of this, the fact that kings care. Yeah. How important was salt to the Scottish economy? And to what extent is it a factor at all today? Well, that's, an, that's a big question. Um, 
it was important in in the in medieval times, let's say, um, because it was a commodity that was needed. That was one thing. Secondly, as uh, as as you will know, and, and your your listeners will will know, salt is we drink, we have to we we are allegedly we eat too much salt, but we need some salt as human beings, and so it's a key commodity. The reason that um, kings um, and and the like. Um, thought it was important is because, of course, because everyone had to use it, it was a useful thing to tax. So, um, so, so that that's um, that's that's that there's one reason for its importance then, and it can salt continues to be an important, hugely important commodity right through to the present time. First of all, it, it, it's in the hands of monarchs. And monarchs have the master of a uh, salt master, if you like, um, and if you like the, the high hygians in Scottish society. It then the, it then falls into the hands of the monasteries, and so the salt works, which are operated from say the 12th century to the 16th century, um, are operated by monks. Uh, or, or the the, uh, the abbey or an abbot then subtract subcontract sorry, um, their pans to to others to operate for them. So it, it it's it's in the hands first of all the monarchs, then into the hands of the great monasteries. Uh, after the reformation, Refor- reformation, it it falls into the hands of Scotland's big landowners or some landowners or those landowners anyway who had lands um, which bordered on the seashore. Um, but also a requirement for them to be interested in salt was that it should that they, their estate should be coal bearing, and this is where it gets interesting, but also tricky, um, but also a bit technical. And I'll try try my best. So, uh, the salt, the the landowners who um, found themselves with landed estates by seashores, so that's um, the Dukes of Hamilton, let's say, on the shores of the Forth, um, the, the Earls of Weems on, also on the shores of the Forth, the Earls of Sutherland up in Sutherland, Brora I referred to early on, they, um, they, they want to mine their coal because they think there's a, because there is a growing market for coal, there's coal market, there's coal market for coal in Europe, there's a market for coal in Scotland too, um, especially from, 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 from Edinburgh. Where there's, where's, where's Scotland's biggest town, and there's 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 growing demand for coal. Now you'll say, where is this headed? Well, the the, the thing is this: that coal um, mined most coal. Um, what the domestic consumers wanted was what was called great coal or large chunks of coal. But when you're mining coal, you also get a lot of smaller coal. Um, you know, just it just just falls off the the roof, if you like, as as miners are are, are going into their, their their shafts and working at their coal faces. But that small coal um, um, is has to be taken out of the pit, even though it doesn't have in itself an economic value, because and it has to be taken out because uh, it can spontaneously combust and set the coal mine on fire. So the coal owners, the landowners who had these coal mines, um, had wanted to find a market for this small coal, and this market happened to be salt, the salt pans, because the salt pans required lots and lots of coal. You required about eight tons of coal to produce a ton of salt. 
Um, so it's a, it's a uh, that ratio varies from place to place according to salinity of the seawater. But let's say it's it's roughly six to eight to one. So they need the salt mass, the salt, the, the salt making required uh, a lot of small coal. The small the, the coal mines would have been uneconomic um, without a market for this small coal because the coal had to the small coal had to be cut, of course, and it had to be taken out of the pits and carried out of the pits. Um, and all of this is labor intensive, which means there's a cost attached to it. And so a market for it was 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 found and that market was salt. And so so in order for a landowner in Scotland in the circumstances I've described to make money from his coal he needed to have um, a market for his small coal and that small coal was the mark that market it was salt so landowners very much wanted to uh, protect and see the growth of the salt industry um, in Scotland and this the um, is this making sense it's very difficult for me to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a complicated process, right? Yeah, but yeah. this is helping build up the answer of yeah. why is this such a big deal? Yeah, good. Good. Um, so the the, the, so the the landowners then needed to protect their market for salt. Now, I've said to you, most Scots would have preferred to import this bay, bay, what was called bay salt from, from the Bay of Biscay. And that happened for a lot. That, that, that happened. Um, for long periods of time. However, that supply of bay salt um, from the Bay of Biscay and, and, and that, that region, the supply of that salt could be interrupted by European war, especially war involving Spain um, and indeed the Low Countries. Um, so when the supply of salt, when the when the when the the Dutch or when during European conflict and supplies of bay salt were restricted um, in the north of Europe, which included Scotland, of course, the salt masters had a rather good time because, of course, they could fill the gap, if you like, um, which was left by the absence of bay salt. However, um, from the sixteen, from around the middle of the seventeenth century when the supply of bay salt could have been restored, um, the Scottish landowners petitioned the Scottish Parliament, of which they were in of which they were significant members, if you like. Um, they worked through the Scottish Parliament to impose a tax on imported bay salt. And this tax was imposed in order to protect the Scottish salt industry. You know, to protect, to, to 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 provide for them a secure market, because without that market, as I say, their coal reserves would have been pretty, um, pretty, pretty. They, they wouldn't have been profitable. They wouldn't have been economic. Um, that changed, of course, with industrialization. But this is before industrialization. So the coal, the landowners of Scotland who had access to coal and access to seawater and who could make salt, um, petitioned or worked through the Scottish Parliament to establish a tax on imported salt, which protected the Scottish salt industry. And that tax um, was put on roughly in, in, in 1660, um, and it remained on until about 1825. Um, so the Scottish salt industry, through its golden age, because this is when most salt was produced, um, was a protected industry. And that takes us into politics and the fascinating, I think the fascinating issue of the of the salt industry and the union of Scotland and England. 
Um, because and one one of the things that you know, your first question you asked me was 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 when did I get interested in in salt? And one of the perhaps the thing that made me most interested in it way way back was that I'd begun to understand um, when I was looking at the making of the, the union between Scotland and England, how much the issue of salt arose as a political issue. And in fact, Daniel Defoe, who was a, a, an English spy in, in Edinburgh, as, as the union, the articles of union between Scotland and England were being debated in late 1706, um, argued that this would be the grand affair, that is the question of how salt would be taxed after the union. And the, to, to cut a long story short, the Scottish coal masters who, and salt masters, um, often the same thing, um, were hugely anxious at the time of these negotiations to ensure that the protection, that protection of the Scottish salt industry against base salt imports would continue um, and so that, that so it becomes a big political issue. And in fact, one of the articles of that union, which made the Great Britain, the, you know, the United Kingdom of Great Britain, one of the articles related to the price of salt after the union. Furthermore, because the because salt was so essential to, in the in the domestic economy and to ordinary consumers, if you like, to ordinary people in Scotland, there was also um, a campaign to ensure that the tax on salt, which would be imposed after the union, because in England there was a salt tax, that the Scottish salt tax would be charged at a lower level, because otherwise the fear was that ordinary Scots wouldn't be able to buy Scottish salt and would um, have to face the prospect of eating um, porridge <laughs> and similar oat-based um, products, which formed the bulk of the Scots' diet at the time, um, in, in, without salt. And can you imagine eating porridge every day of your life, <laughs> more than once, without any kind of seasoning at all? It would have would been not a, enjoy grim that. Prospect, a grim prospect. And yes. of course, salt was also used to preserve, you know, cheese and uh, meat and, and fish and so forth. So it's an essential commodity, which uh, and which 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 um which would have been could have been taxed at a high level, and that would have caused huge um, social problems in in Scotland and indeed. Whenever there had been the threat of a of a of a high salt tax in late seventeenth century Scotland, um, uh, riots did occur. So, given the picture you've just painted for us, it seems inconceivable that salt would not be a large part of the economy today. I mean, just the number of things that are all kind of bound up together seems yeah. like it would be inevitable. Um, and yet salt making is not a huge part of Scotland's economy today. No. When, how and why did that stop? Well, the, 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 the um, things changed in the late, in the 1670s really, when, um, when rock salt was discovered in England, um, in Cheshire, um and 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 that of that 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 is um, rock salt and salt from brine springs which is you know the nant witches and the the Dreit witches and that that part of of england that salt is much more concentrated that salute that saline solution if you like is much more concentrated than seawater 
And so it requires much less in the way of fuel to turn, say, brine springs into, or water from brine springs into consumable salt. Um, so, um, and, and rock salt, you know, I don't know, you can, you, you can imagine rock salt, it, it doesn't require a great deal of um, a fuel to turn that into a, a usable salt. So, to cut a long story short, or long and short of it, long and short of it, is that that salt, um, which was discovered um, in, in England in the later 17th century, is much cheaper than the Scottish variety. And um, while the Scots were protected to a large extent from it by these salt laws that I've talked about, which were, you know, the roots of which were in the 1660s and then they were confirmed in the at the time of the Union. Well, the Scottish salt was protected. In, in, in 1825, the salt duties are removed and Scottish salt is no longer protected. And when it's no longer protected, it is no longer able to compete with English, um, English, uh, English rock and brine salt. And so um, since 18, well, the, the industry did survive um, that um, blow, if you like, but on a much lower scale and, and in a very different fashion. So basically, from the early 19th century, Scotland's salt needs were by and large um, provided for by salt imported from, from 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 England, which is far cheaper and indeed, in many respects, is is superior. So, since it's from from the early nineteenth century, the Scottish salt market or the market for Scottish salt has been a UK uh, part of a UK um, salt. Uh, distribution marketing operation, if you like. That is that um, the Scots have no particular advantage or certainly didn't have an advantage uh, or much of an advantage um, after 1825. Although some some salt in Scotland continued to be made and, and, and it was made for particular purposes, largely for industrial purposes, but it was made by in part by importing Rock salt from 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 England, and then um, then processing it, if you like, or mixing it with sea water salt or, or sea water, you know, the salt as was made traditionally in Scotland, and it carries on right through to the nineteen fifties, really. But it's an industrial salt or a salt used for for particular um, purposes, um, like like roads and so forth, where it where 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 it is mixed. Um, mixed with um as i say rock salt from from england but it's a very much smaller industry um mm. after 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 the early 19th century mm. no that's that's really interesting um one of the things that i find so fascinating about this history that you obviously your contributors all talk about in the book and you're discussing here is just how long some of the time scales are right these techniques are consistent across such a long period of time the record goes back so far it's happening so much kind of all over the different coasts um You've sort of hinted at, I think, some of the challenges uh, that salt-making businesses faced at different points. I mean, the one that really sticks in my mind is the picture you paint of what it would have been like inside the sheds, (laughs) which doesn't sound particularly pleasant. Um, But given kind of how many other things in the world change over this period, if we're really going right back to the 11th century up to, say, the 19th, what were some of the big challenges that these businesses faced and to what extent was it sort of perennially the same challenge versus new ones over time? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, that's a good question. Um, 
what's 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 interesting in a way is that tech the salt making techniques don't change greatly over time you know you you needed your pans and you needed fuel and you needed patience <laughs> um, but um so so but there are there are within within or if i unpack that a bit there there are changes the the um the the, the pans become larger um the uh, way in which the firing takes place um, changes in the sense that um initially and let's say in the 16th, 17th century, you would have soul pans, or, or where where the fire is, the fire is um, underneath those pans. I've talked about there, there is a, a large fire, obviously, in order to create a steady heat under the under the pan. But that initially that that is just lies on the floor, if you like, and and the coals lie on the floor and 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 and, and burn and and heat the pan above. Um, in the let's say the later 18th century, you, you have the Maybe even earlier. There's a lot of regional local differences, but you have in the 18th century, later 18th century, the introduction of the brander pans, where where coal is um, supported in, in a in a kind of metal cage, if you like, underneath the pan. So that's more efficient. Um, that's more that's a more efficient um, way of heating the pans. Um, so that happens. It's not very exciting change. There are because what I'm, I want to the point I'd like to make is that these pan houses they're called, which are located as I say around different parts of Scotland's coastline, aren't very close to the seashore necessarily because they have to be near the sea water, um, and that and all sorts of challenges are faced there, which are continuous. Like for example, the sea and the wind. Um, which are continually battering these structures, and so um, the pans through all through all the records I've seen. And I've seen records going back to the 16th century and going right up to the 20th century. Um, there is continual re, continual rebuilding of these bu- buildings, actually, because they're, they're they're being you know hammered during during bad weather. Uh, the chimneys are called lums in Scotland. The lums. Um, are being used con- more or less continuously, as you can imagine, because the the process being a twenty four hour process, and the the, pa- the 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 chimneys are continually having to be rebuilt, and so these little these 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 pan houses are are, are the centre of very of, of of little industrial conglomerations, if you like, because you need all these various tradesmen, builders, masons, um, uh, and and others who work on the pans um, continuously. Re, refurbishing, if you like, the buildings and the pans themselves, because the pans themselves um, are continually being heated. Because the heat is not necess- is, is not regular. You know, it's very hard to create a. It was it harder in, in olden times anyway to create a constant heat underneath that large pan. Um, there is the the pans are damaged. They overheat. If the salt worker doesn't do his or her, his job properly. Um, the pans can burn, and that's not a lot, lot of fun because it's very not fun for the lawn owner anyway, because this is very expensive metal. Um, but also, but anyway, as regardless, the the pan over over time, the continual heating of the sea water creates creates um, calcium and other deposits on the sides of the pans. The pans have to be stopped, and all of this um, material, if you like, has to be chipped away. So, um, when you can, you can, if we if we take a 
uh, a, a pan, a typical Scottish salt pan from the 16th century to the 20th century over the course of a year, it will probably be only operational for at maximum two-thirds of the time because of the rebuilding process that has the repair and rebuilding processes that have to take place on a regular basis. So, so th- that and those challenges remain, you know, from from earliest times, um, not necessarily not necessarily to the present because we'll come to the present later on, but um, certainly through to the, the 19th century, these were problems. And and um, even in the uh, 20th century, um, I've read reports in, in newspapers of, of pan houses, the few that remained, um, being overwhelmed by sea surges and, 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 and particularly bad periods of winter weather. So the weather and the location um, are are problems that that are there for centuries and don't really they're challenges that that, that remain throughout. Mm. And in today's world, where we're often indoors, um, we tend to discount that one, but it's worth very much highlighting. Indeed. Um, if I could ask us to come into the modern time a bit, we did say we'd get there, and I think now's the time. Could you tell us what the Wagonway Heritage Group is and what the work is that it does? Yes, that's a fascinating group about which I knew very little until I um, until well, just a bit before that salt symposium I'm talking about. I think they contacted me because I'd written this book, and I, I think they thought I was dead. But they got because it'd been written so long ago, and I was relatively young when I wrote it. Uh, anyway, they, they they invited me uh, if I were still alive to go and give them a talk. Uh, and, now, who are they? The, it's the 1722 um, Wagonway Society, and it's based in in in, in Trenent and Cockenzie. Um, they're, they're two very uh, very two little villages close together on the on the um, southern bank of the shore of, of the Forth. Um, they were set up um, probably about ten years ago. Um, and they were given that name because in 1722, Scotland's first railway, basically, or wagonway, was opened, yeah, or laid down and 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 opened and became operational. And the wagonway um, was used to take coal from Trenent, which is a few miles inland, to Cockenzie, where there were salt pans. So basically, and and indeed, the coal was shipped. You know, some coal was shipped. Um, for export as well. But basically, um, the, the, the wagonway was opened in 1722 to take coal to Cockenzie for a variety of purposes. Um, it's a fa- it, it, it was Scotland's first um, wagonway. And um, the these individuals, Ed Bethune and, and, and others, um, were interested in, 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 in finding out what archaeological remains there were of the wagonway. Um, and the associated buildings, and this they have they've done wonderfully well over the over the over the over recent years, and so they have uncovered um, parts of the wagonway. Um, they have uncovered parts of early salt pans, you know, going back to the seventeenth century. Wonderful um, work they have been doing. They are discovering two other aspects of old industrial Cockenzie, if you like, which is which is now a, a there's little, there are few signs of, of industry now, but um, in the 16th, 17th, 18th, uh, and even into the 19th centuries, it was a little industrial 
cluster, if you like, with 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 glassworks and 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 pottery and saltworks and 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 um, and shipping. So the 1722 Wagon Way Society is a remarkably uh, active and successful local group, which I, you know, take my hat off to because they've done some, none of them I think are trained, or very, I don't think any of them are trained historians, but, but, but if they are, I've done them a disservice. But certainly they are by and large local people who are committed to their community, its history and heritage, and they are, they put it on the map, so to speak, because they've constructed a little museum there where you can see remains of of, of glassworks and and pottery and, and 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 some salt work, and indeed, most important of all, this this wagonway. Mm, brilliant! Thank you for um, highlighting their work to us. Um, if we go then from the past to linking the past and the present, uh, if we think firmly in the present what does mm. salt making look like today size right. industry <laughs> methods used you talked about cleaner salts yes, what are we talking about here all of that well <laughs> um here's another plug for the book the, the opening the introduction which i i kind of wrote um taught describes a walk of mine along a loch on the island of sky which is in the northwest of scotland um, and it's a trackway near the, the town called Uig, where the ferries leave for the Outer Isles. And you walk along this road, not expecting to, to, to find much. You see uh, an old castle in the distance, but there on the right-hand side, if we're, if we're walking south, um, you see three, four polytunnels by the seashore. And these poly, polytunnels are the modern-day salt industry in on sky and they're the first of the new salt works in scotland they were they were they, it was the company was formed about just over 10 years ago um by chris and mina watts and the in in these polytunnels something quite remarkable happens <laughs> that is salt is made without coal without peat without wood it's it, it's it's made by evaporation um, between the months really of, of, of April and, and, and September, and they produce, they, they now have very fine micro micro bore um, valves. So when they take water in from the sea, it's 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 pure. It's it's not like the salt that was taken. Uh, sorry, the seawater that was taken in in let's like, say the 18th century, which had all sorts of impurities in it. It's very pure. They the they the salt um, naturally evaporates on the floors of these polytunnels, which become enormously hot, um, but uh, it, it's made um, in that natural fashion, if you like, in Scotland, which is quite remarkable. Um, and the, the the reason it can be done now, whereas it couldn't have been done even 40 years ago, is because the, the because of the, you know, the most modern um, uh, poly, uh, polythene that um, allows that that's strong, that's robust, that stands up to the wind, which is a constant um, uh, constant feature of living on sky. So they produce um, this wonderfully clean, beautiful salt with all sorts of um, all sorts of good things in it, um, and have done so, as I say, for 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 more than ten years now. Uh, it's a it's a it's a 
work. It's and they're selling it obviously commercially. It's high end salt. It's it's a lot more expensive than your, you know, typical domestic salt. Um, it's sold in delicatessens, but it's used in 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 butter. And in, in one of the big manufacturer butter manufacturers in Scotland is using Sky Salt. It's made in the most. It's put into the most wonderful uh, salted caramel ice cream, which is made by another maker um, up here. Um, so they have done remarkably well. Sadly, um, while they feature in in a splendid chapter in the book. They've recently sold the business. It was hard going, just just a couple of them really working together. Um, and, and, and to take it to the next stage required a lot more uh, outlay in terms of, of, of staff costs and, and getting to that next stage and, 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 and producing enough income to pay for, you know, um, the next stage is, is was, was something they didn't feel that they wanted to do. They've sold it to um, a French um, a French family, actually. Um, who have this summer taken it over and are very keen and enthusiastic to um, to keep the story going and indeed to develop it and to market this very modern Scottish salt um, throughout Europe. Um, that's 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 one of the the, the the current operations. The other one that's very different and it's also features in the book is um, at um, in Air, where there's a um, there's a Something which we'd never seen in Scotland before. And so it, the salt there is being made with seawater, but using um, a blackthorn tower, which is hard to describe, but it's like a a vaulting horse, if you can imagine, at a school gym. You know, the, the old vaulting horses, they, 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 they had to they punish little boys and girls <laughs> having to leap over. <laughs> Certainly I remember it that way. But it's a, 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 a huge version of that, but it is made of blackthorn. And seawater is allowed to run down the outside or through, sorry, these black thorns in this kind of uh, triangular kind of apparatus. Um, and um, over time, salt, wonderful salt too, is made there. Um, but, but that manner, and it's it's a very, it's it's never been used in Scotland before. It's it, it was a sort of method that was used in Poland and Germany. Um, and indeed, the the, um, the, uh, the 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 couple who set that up, uh, Gregory and, and Worley Marshall, um, went to, to to look at the, what was what was being done in in Northern Europe, and imported, if you like, that technology to Scotland. Um, it's a very simple technology. Again, there's there's um, there's no there's no coal, no nothing, no nothing like that be involved. And they too produce a very fine and and successful. Um, naturally produced salt. Mm. Two fascinating examples. Thank you for taking us through them. Um, things perhaps for people to look out for. Um, and in exactly that vein, things to look out for, I have a penultimate question, um, perhaps my final one on salt. Throughout the book, um, it came up in a number of places that given, and obviously given your answer before about the importance of salt, this is perhaps not surprising to listeners who've gotten this far, but salt has made quite an impact on place names in Scotland throughout history, many of which people may not be familiar, may not realise that's where they've come from. So for anyone who is curious about looking at a map of Scotland and its place names, what sorts of names might they see that actually have something to do with salt? Uh, well, the most obvious one is is salt coats, which is in Ayrshire. 
Um, and that's after salt cottages, because salt was made there um, for a long time. That's 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 one of the longest lasting salt works in the in in Scotland. You know, in, in the sense you can trace it back to well, thirteenth, fourteenth century, I think. Um, and and it, and it was going well into the nineteenth century. There's no no obvious traces of it nowadays. There's places like West Pans. The, which is pans, Preston pans on the, on the east coast, which is nearby. You'll find lots of um, if you if you look at an ordnance survey map, you'll find lots of um, salt points, uh, salt bays. You know, um, which haven't let the, the, the names are of not of, of towns as such, but but of of, of, of locations, if you like. So um, a, a good look at a, a, a decent ordnance survey map of Scotland or maps actually and you will find a lot of references to to salt and and those some of those references um are are, are take you to real not real live but some salt remains or remains of salt so i mentioned brora way at the beginning and the work of the Klein heritage um society and they have um uncovered a lot of um the foundations and and, and low walls um, that are remaining of salt works there going back to the 16th century and then also in the 18th century and the 19th century. So there's a lot of salt working and related coal mining um, re- remains to be seen um, there. When we when we launched the, the, the book that, you're, that we're talking about tonight, we, Joe Hamley, my co-editor, did a talk, uh, did a, a walking talk um, along part of the Ayrshire coast past what were remains of salt works there and down in a place called Prestwick where there's an airport but there on much more interesting to me is is the fact that there are two fully upstanding salt work um, salt houses which were built probably in the early 19th century so you can actually see today traces of of these um, salt works sadly um, one of the best that there was which was a a salt work erected on the island of Arran, just across from Prestwick, in in the early 18th century. It was a wonderful. There was once upon a time, and I saw this in the 1970s, um, a gate, rounded gable ended wall of a salt work that, that was a, a, located at a place called the Cock of Arran. Uh, it was the best upstanding remain we had of any uh, 17th, 16th century salt work in Scotland. It, it was, it was, although it was a West Coast location, it was, it was copied. It was built by East Coast salters, you know, uh, 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 according to what they were used to, um, used to working in. And of course, and there were no upstanding remains of East Coast salt works at that uh, in Scotland. There aren't really any left. But sadly, in a, in a gale, that wall blew down. However, <laughs> this is for your for your listeners underneath yourself. In the book, you will see a picture, a photograph of that wonderful wall of that salt work, um, which um, was there when I visited it way back in the nineteen seventies. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, There's obviously so much more about salt we could talk about. Um, The book obviously has loads more detail for anyone curious. Um, But as my final question, uh, which may or may not be about salt, this is obviously part of something you've been working on for quite a while, um, but it is now out in the world. Uh, the co- it's gone from conference to proper book. Is there anything you might be working on now that this is done, even if it's not a book, even if it's not about salt, that you'd like to preview? 
<laughs> well, I, I, I think I've had my say on salt, but others are others other others are carrying it. Particularly Joe and and, and other um, archaeologists, where they are doing the. There is more to be done. There, there are some wonderful collections of um, papers um, relating to the salt industry, which are presently hard to access. One one is the the Hamilton the Hamilton family of Hamilton, the Dukes of Hamilton. They've got some wonderful material. It's it's a little bit difficult to get into these days. At Weems Castle, um, where there was a big salt works in the in the from from the 17th century onwards, um, there is a, there's a great archive there. Again, it's a little bit difficult to access, but there's 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 work there's local studies to be to be to be done. My own my own work is not going to be on salt. My own current project is something called it's related to something called Harvey's Dyke, which was a, a wall that was which was erected by a a, a, a nouveau riche. Um, Landlord in in on the banks of the River Clyde in Glasgow, uh, this wall blocked a walkway along the River Clyde, led to a great riot and the wall being blown up. Um, a series of court cases, um, a wonderful story of um, of of uh, a people's victory, if you like, because over time, the people who wanted to walk along the banks of the River Clyde, who wanted to fight for the liberty of the banks of the Clyde, um, won their case in the House of Lords, which um, was of enormous importance in Scotland in terms of uh, establishing or re-establishing rights of way of, for ordinary people of, of, of walking along long-established walkways and pathways. So that's my current project. Mm, very intriguing. Best of luck with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, while you are investigating, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again titled Salt, Scotland's Newest Oldest Industry, published by Berlin in 2023. Chris, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.